following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. One of the things I really enjoyed about coming back to Auckland is having an actual summer. It's been fantastic. It's been a while for me because, I mean, last year was a bit of a joke. You all remember that. It was, it was kind of a rubbish summer. But before that, in Christchurch, the year before that was a beautiful summer. It was beautiful and sunny and warm. We were just a little distracted at the time by, you know, buildings falling over and liquefaction coming up through the ground. So, you know, it kind of tended to take the, uh, the, the fun out of the summer season. So I'm enjoying a nice, warm summer. And, of course, part of that means I get to partake in the staple of the Kiwi summer, fish and chips. Now, I don't know what it says about our culture that our signature dish is to take a nice, lean, healthy piece of fish, deep fry the heck out of it, and then put fries beside it. I don't know what that says about us, but I don't care, (laughs) because I love it. I love fish and chips. Uh, It's it's a lovely, uh, lovely thing, and I've been... um, yeah, I've been availing myself of it often. And I think that's something that we have a little bit in common with, with the people living in Israel 2,000 years ago. Well, at least a little bit. They didn't have fries so much, and they didn't fry their fish, which is probably a good thing. But fish and bread was a very common meal that they would have had, especially up in the northern area of Israel, around the Sea of Galilee, where fishing was a huge industry of the area. Uh, which is why Jesus had several fishermen and his disciples. So fish, bread, very common. Now, while I looked forward to my Friday night fish and chips, I'm not sure that they look forward to having it every day, especially the kids, but that was life. So it was no surprise then that when one boy left his house uh, for the day, he had in his pack a lunch of fish and bread. It wasn't particularly interesting, as I've said, but... That was the furthest thing from his mind. He didn't care. Because today, this boy was going to hear one of the most famous people in the land at the time. This this kind of teacher come miracle worker, come revolutionary, named Jesus. And he'd heard about this guy and was passing through. And he'd heard about all of the radical teachings that Jesus had been, had been saying and, and teaching. He'd been hearing about all of the miracles and all of the healings. And he'd been hearing about all of the headaches that he'd been giving the religious leaders, which, you know, tickled him nothing. You know, he just loved that. And so we got to see this guy in action. And so he followed the crowd down and uh, found the place where Jesus was. And uh, he listened to this guy go. Now, Jesus was a great teacher, and he was teaching all of this amazing stuff. But he's also kind of long, you know. And so the afternoon was kind of rolling on and turning into evening, and the sun was starting to get lower in the sky, and he could kind of hear a few stomachs rumbling around the crowd. And he kind of came to a realization. He's like, no one's brought any food. It's about dinner time, and no one's brought anything except me. I've got my food, but no one else has brought anything here. Now, I don't know if this boy looked at Jesus and thought, that dude looks hungry. Or perhaps he thought that his small meal could make a difference amongst all of this huge crowd. Personally, I think he was just sick and tired of eating fish and bread and was happy to get rid of his lunch. But whatever the reason was, the Bible says that this boy goes up to Andrew, who was one of the disciples, and offers his lunch to him. 
And this act of generosity, this simple act, led to one of the most famous and impressive miracles that Jesus performed. And since we're in the middle of a series on the miracles of Jesus, I thought this would be a good one to have a focus on this morning. Now, another of Jesus' followers, a fisherman by the name of John, recalls it in his book. And if you've got a Bible with you, go ahead and follow along in the book of John near the beginning of the New Testament in chapter 6, starting in verse 1. If you don't have a Bible with you, shame on you. I'm just kidding. It's not a problem. We have the up here on the screen, so you can follow along. John tells the story this way. After this, Jesus crossed over to the far side of the Sea of Galilee, also known as the Sea of Tiberias. A huge crowd kept following him wherever he went because they saw his miraculous signs as he healed the sick. Then Jesus climbed a hill and sat down with his disciples around him. It was nearly time for the Jewish Passover celebration. Jesus soon saw a huge crowd of people coming to look for him. Turning to Philip, he said, Where can we buy bread to feed all of these people? He was testing Philip because he already knew what he was going to do. Philip replied, Even if we work for months, we wouldn't have enough money to feed them. Then Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. There's a young boy here with five barley loaves and two fish. But what good is that with this huge crowd? Tell everyone to sit down, Jesus said. So they all sat down on the grassy slopes. The men alone numbered about 5,000. Then Jesus took the loaves, gave thanks to God, and distributed them to the people. Afterward, he did the same with the fish. And they all ate as much as they wanted. After everyone was full, Jesus told his disciples, Now gather the leftovers so that nothing is wasted. So they picked up the pieces and filled 12 baskets with scraps that were left over by the people who had eaten from the five barley loaves. When the people saw him do this miraculous sign, they exclaimed, Surely he is the prophet that we have been expecting. When Jesus saw that they were ready to force him to be their king, he slipped away into the hills by himself. Okay, so pretty impressive. Jesus takes this one boy's meal, two fish, five loaves of bread, and he feeds what would have been close to 12,000 people, including women and children. Now think about that. That's enough to fill the Vector Arena downtown to full capacity. And he takes this one little lunch, and he takes care of all of it. And he gives them all this, this huge feed of fish and chips out of two fish and a large scoop of chips with enough left over to reheat the next day for lunch. Now, if they were in New Zealand today and if they were doing this, if Jesus went out and bought everybody in this crowd one piece of fish and half a scoop of chips, which, you know, it's not a huge lunch, but it's a good, good feed. If he had done that, it would have cost him around $45,000. $45,000. That's enough to buy you a brand new Holden Commodore. And yet this guy does it for the price of a pair of fluffy dice to hang in the mirror. That to me is impressive. And as a lover of food, I'm personally impressed by it a lot. It's, it resonates with me. But I think sometimes that's where we leave it. A very impressive miracle by a very compassionate man who didn't want to see all of these poor people go hungry. But as we take a step back, and as we look at what is actually going on here, I think there is more happening behind the scenes, or in fact, right in front of us, than we first think. 
I think we see that this is not just an impressive miracle, but an important one, a very important one. And Jesus is making a very specific point. Now, one of the best ways that I feel like we can see the importance of, of a miracle um, in the Gospels is to see how many Gospels record the story. Now, if you're familiar with the Bible, you know there are four Gospels at the beginning of the New Testament. And the first three of them, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're all very similar. They tell very similar stories, even with different perspectives sometimes. But they, they, they tell a lot of the same stories. But John, John is different. John is kind of the weird guy in the group. And what he wanted to do is he wanted to tell some of the other stories that Jesus did. And so it almost looked like he, he, he looked at the other three Gospels and said, okay, they've told those stories. I want to fill in the gaps a little bit and kind of give a volume two of all of the things that Jesus did. But there are some stories that even John can't resist putting in his Gospel. There are some stories that are just too important to leave out. And it's almost like if John left it out, it would have ruined the story. Now, for example, every gospel, including John, tells the story of the death, burial, and the resurrection, the coming back to life of Jesus. Very, very important story. Whereas only Matthew and Luke tell the story of the physical birth of Jesus. So it kind of gives us a little bit of a, a, a way of seeing which one is more important in the, in the story that, that God is um, telling us in the Bible. So it's interesting to me that we find that this story of Jesus feeding the 12,000 is in every gospel, including John. And in fact, not only that, but Mark and Matthew also include another story of Jesus feeding another crowd, this time of about 10,000. So now we have six instances in our gospels of this kind of story. Clearly, this is an important event. But the question we want to ask this morning, at least the first question I want to ask this morning, is why? Why is this miracle so important? What's more important about this miracle than, say, him healing a blind man or exercising a demon? All of those are important, of course. But why is this one so many, told so many times? Well, I think we can get a clue um, in verse 4, uh, where John inserts a helpful little um, side note when he says that the, the Passover feast was about to be celebrated. It was just around the corner. Which means, of course, that everybody's minds are on the Passover. Okay, this is just around the corner. It's kind of like Christmas season. So I want to rewind the tape a little bit. About 1,200 years to the time of Moses. Now Moses, one of the great figures of the Old Testament. Um, many of you will be familiar with him. And in fact, he would have been the central figure for the Jews at this time. Before Jesus came along, he would have been the central human figure in, in the story of the people of God. And one of the reasons is because he was the man who led the people of God out of slavery in Egypt, the, the famous story of the Exodus, out of slavery in Egypt and into the promised land, this prosperous new land that they could call their own. This was such an important event that every year, after it happened, they would celebrate it with this massive week-long festival called Passover. It was the highlight of the calendar year. Now, of course, before they get into the Promised Land, after they come out of Egypt, before they go into what is modern-day Israel, they had this whole 40-year wandering around in the desert thing. 
you know, where they wouldn't stop and ask for directions. They were just kind of lost. But God was doing that on purpose. And so they were out in the wilderness for 40 years. And as you can imagine, they got hungry. And they started to complain to Moses, as they like to do. And Moses prayed to God, and God provided miraculous bread called manna. And it sustained them until they were able to get into their new promised land. This is all very important. Then, right at the end of Moses' life, we see in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses is talking to the people, and Moses continued, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, from among your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. Now that was pretty cool, but it didn't seem too significant until later on in the same book we read this. There has never been another prophet in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. So what you have here is you have the people of God are waiting. Ever since the time of Moses, they've been waiting for a prophet like Moses, who would do the things that Moses did, who would have the authority and the power that Moses had. So now, 1,200 years later, here's Jesus out in the wilderness with a big crowd of people who are hungry, and he feeds them miraculously. Now, I find an interesting point here. If you look through this story, if you go back and and read this passage in John chapter 6. The boy gives him fish and bread, but what is the main focus for Jesus? It's the bread. He mentions the bread time and time again. He asks Philip, where are we going to find bread to feed these people? Afterwards, the scraps that they pick up came from the five barley loaves. I think this is a very intentional thing. Jesus is saying here, he's pointing out, well, John actually, in his very crafty way, the author here, is pointing out that this was a miraculous feast of bread in the wilderness. Why is that important? Because Jesus is making a blatantly obvious statement that he is the new Moses. He is the prophet that they have been waiting for. It's no accident that he performed this miracle right around Passover. Think of it this way. If you heard a story in the news about a a woman who gave birth to a child um, in a barn in in South Canterbury or something like that, and it was July, you'd think that's a pretty cool story. If you heard of a woman giving birth to a child in a barn in South Canterbury on December 22nd, that would have a lot more significance to you. Everybody's mind is already on what was happening with Moses and the miracle of bread in in the wilderness. And then Jesus does it again. And he's saying, I'm the new Moses. I'm the prophet you've been waiting for. And not only that, but catch this. He's saying, I'm actually the God who provided the bread in the first place back then. And then he'll take it even a step further later on when he says, you know what? I am the bread that sustains you. I'm the bread that will sustain you until you get into your new promised land, this new prosperous land that you can call your own. Jesus performed this miracle at least twice so that people would get this. And it's it's been immortalized in our Gospels six times so that we would get the message. Jesus isn't just providing a catering service here. He's making an explicit statement 
of who he is and what he is doing, leading us out of our slavery to sin and into our new promised land, the kingdom of God. But you want to hear something ironic? Jesus is fulfilling biblical prophecies and promises right in front of people's mind, right in front of people's noses here. And the people you would expect to get it don't. The religious leaders of the day spent all of their time in the Bible. They were, they were studying it. They were learning from it, reading it, memorizing it, teaching it. They were the ones who should have got what was happening here. They were educated. They were well-respected, intelligent people. And yet Jesus tells them this. He says, you search the scriptures because you think they give you eternal life. But the scriptures point to me. And yet you refuse to come and receive this life. Now contrast this with the people who are actually at the fish and chip feed. These simple fishermen and builders, farmers, little to no education. Listen to what they say in verse 14. When the people saw him do the miraculous sign, they exclaimed, Surely he is the prophet we have been expecting. They get it. They saw it. They saw this, this food miraculously given to them in the wilderness. They connected the dots and they realized that this man was the man that they had been waiting for. The answer to all of their prayers. The religious leaders couldn't see past their own pride and inflated self-worth which I feel like is an interesting challenge and warning to us. So that's the miracle. That's what happened here. Not just the simple fish and chip feed, but a statement of God's mission for us. But the next question we want to ask is, what do we do with this? How do we respond to this miracle? There were two groups of people sitting on the grass out in the wilderness there witnessing this miracle. One of these groups was represented by the religious leaders. People who looked at this miracle, they saw this powerful miracle and they wondered, where does this miracle come from? Where does this power come from? Then they analyzed how it was delivered and, and how the authority came about. And they, they, they see the pros and the cons and they, they look at how it all happened. Some of them are impressed. Others threatened. Some dismissive. But the point is that they looked at it intellectually, something that is to be understood, something that we need to kind of get our heads around and, and understand. Then you had the, uh, the people, the fishermen, the, the builders, the, the farmers, the blue-collar types. They were hungry, and they saw a man give them food. They saw someone reach out to them with the very power of God to sustain them in their time of need. They recognized the pattern of God looking after them as he had looked after their ancestors. They saw it as not something, not an intellectual event, or not just an intellectual event, but an invitation, something to participate in, something to experience. Now, I want us to put a bookmark in this because I want to take a little bit of a, um, a tangent out and see that this is happening somewhere else in the Bible as well. And in Mark chapter 10, we're going to flick over there if you've got your Bibles. Um, starting in verse 13, there's a story here, another famous story. And Mark says it this way. He says, One day some parents brought their children to Jesus so he could touch and bless them. But the disciples scolded them, scolded the parents for bothering him. 
So again, you got you got a couple of groups of people here. You got the parents. Now they wanted to bring their children to Jesus so that he could bless them. Now you've got to remember in the first century, life is pretty hard. They don't have the socialized healthcare system that we have here. They don't have up-to-date medical, you know, uh, hospitals and doctors and all that sort of stuff. A lot of children simply did not make it to adulthood. And so the parents see this man of God coming through. He's a miracle. He's a miracle maker. He's a, he's a powerful healer. And they want them to bless their children so that maybe their kids can make it to adulthood. The disciples, on the other hand, these guys have been working with Jesus for a while. They know how this goes. They know that every time they walk into a new town, he's going to get flocked and mobbed by all of these poor peasants who want them to just touch their kids. And he knows that this guy is an important man. He's got a lot of stuff on his agenda, so we need to kind of give him some space, you know? We need to kind of just give a little barrier. And so they kind of saw themselves as a self-appointed bodyguards of Jesus. And they, they wanted to kind of create some space so that he can kind of put his mind to the more important messianic jobs, more important jobs that he has to do, like getting rid of the Roman army and bringing Israel back to its former glory. And so they, they, they kind of push the parents back. So who gets this right here? Well, have a look. Listen to Jesus' response. He says, when Jesus saw what was happening... He was angry with his disciples. He said to them, let the children come to me. Don't stop them. For the kingdom of God belongs to those who are like these children. I tell you the truth. Anyone who does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will never enter it. Then he took the children in his arms and he placed his hands on their heads and he blessed them. Okay, so clearly disciples, they got it wrong. So the parents, they got it right, right? Actually, no. Have a look back. Have a look back through that. Who wins here? Who are the ones that actually get a blessing from Jesus? The children. The kids. They're the ones who get it right. See, the parents, they wanted what was best for their kids. They saw a powerful man of God and they thought, I want his power for my children. I want his blessing for my children. But they completely missed the point that the blessing Jesus gave could have been for them as well. The disciples, they saw this powerful man of God and they wanted to help him achieve his greatness and splendor. But they completely missed the point that Jesus blessing people was his greatness and splendor. But the kids... They didn't overthink things. They saw a powerful man of God and they jumped in his arms. And this is the point. This is the point of this story. This is the point of the fishes and loaves story. This is the point of almost everything that Jesus has been doing here on earth. The person of Jesus, his actions, his words, his miracles... They are not just things to be studied and understood. We need to study them. We must understand them. But I will tell you this. If we leave it there, they are of absolutely no use to us. And we are wasting our time. We're wasting our time. Jesus doesn't want to be analyzed. He wants to be experienced. He wants to be known. He wants to be loved. 
There are many people here who have had a long and vibrant relationship with God, and that's awesome. There's a lot of people here who truly get what it means to connect with Him, and, and, and that's awesome. But I fear there are a lot of people here also who perhaps would resonate with one of the characters that we've seen this morning. You've got the religious leaders who are distantly and intellectually analyzing Jesus. They appreciate him, sure. They may even believe in him. But they're not doing it with much more than, than just cognitive action. You've got the parents appreciating all that God can offer other people. Man, they, just, they know that if these people would just open up their lives to God, that he would do some amazing things. Man, he could revolutionize their life. He could, he could do everything that he promised to do, and they could have a great life. But that doesn't seem to want to happen to them. They don't really seem to want to open up themselves. Not really. It's like Reuben said, do they really want to be healed? Not really. And then you've got the disciples so eagerly excited about serving God, about achieving for God, that they forget to stop and actually interact with Him like He really wanted all along. Any of those sound familiar to you? This message means a lot to me because I've spent many years dancing back and forth between one or two or three of those characters. I fear I've missed so much because, you know, we go to church every week. We study the Bible. We go to Bible studies. We pray. We do all of that stuff. But it never leaves our heads. Our concepts are things to learn like we're in school or something. The very concept of calling it Sunday school for kids probably just perpetuates that. And you know what it's like? It's like us getting on a plane flying all the way over to America, getting in a car, driving out into the desert to the Grand Canyon, one of the most famous landmarks, beautiful landmarks in the world, driving all the way out there, parking in the car park, pulling out a book about the Grand Canyon, opening it up and saying, wow, this place is amazing. So close to real, true interaction with that beauty. But we just don't do it. See, here's the thing. This miracle, fishes and loaves, Jesus performed this. He fed such a large crowd of people as an intentional statement that he was the new Moses, that he was leading people on this new exodus. But think about it. He could have just told them that. He could have just said, hi, I'm the new Moses. All right? I'm the guy. Follow me. Here we go. Maybe he did. I I don't know. But I think... He chose instead to create an experience, to create something that people could participate in. They're not just hearing the message. They're engaging in it. They're being a part of it. They're not just hearing the good news. They are literally eating it up. And this is an image we see time and time again in the Bible. God comes to Isaiah. Is it Isaiah? I could be wrong about that. Comes to Isaiah and he says, eat the scroll. Eat the words of God. Tastes like honey. And he talks about consuming and and engaging, not just listening. Fish and chips, definitely one of my favorite meals. Probably always will be. 
But you know, it's not going to do me any good just to sit there and look at it. To, to marvel at the colors and the smells, to smell it and to, to kind of show everybody what I've got. Doesn't mean no good to read off the ingredients. Definitely doesn't mean no good to read off the ingredients. If I'm going to enjoy this meal, there's only one thing I can do, and that is to eat it, to put it in me, to make it part of who I am. Jesus lays out a feast for us of himself. He gives us himself to truly experience and connect with. You know, during the last meal that he has with his disciples before he goes off and is killed, he, he gives us this experience to remember him by. He takes this loaf of bread. He doesn't just say, my body is going to be broken. He takes a loaf of bread and he breaks it in front of them. He says, eat this, eat this. This is me. This is what I'm doing for you. And he takes this glass of wine and he pours out this wine. And he says, this is blood. This is my blood. I want you to drink it because this is me. And I want me to be a part of who you are. And every time you celebrate the Passover feast, every time you gather together to have a meal, remember what I did. Don't just remember it. Eat together and remember it. Put it in you. Make it part of who you are. Engage in what I am doing here. And that picture still survives today. Every week, we, we go to the sides of the room here, we take a little cracker and a little cup of juice, and that represents that body and that blood. And we do that. And I think this is the perfect way to apply what we're doing here today, what I was talking about. To apply this miracle of the fishes and loaves is to take part in it, to eat it, to make it part of yourself. This represents the body and the blood of Jesus. It represents the new Moses paving a path into this new kingdom that we can be a part of giving up his life so that we could have eternal life. It's there. It's in your hands. So in a moment, we're going to go, and you can go to the table nearest you and, and pick up a piece of uh, cracker and juice. And you can take it in your own time, but let's just not think about it. Remember by taking it in yourself. The Bible says, taste and see that the Lord is good. So let's eat up. Let me pray. Lord, you really could have just, there is a myriad of ways you could have done what you did. You could have come down to earth. You could have died and gone back to heaven without seeing a single person. You could have written it down on tablets. You could have uploaded onto a Facebook page. You could have done a hundred different things to express what you were doing, but instead you came and you lived among us. You ate with us. You cried with us. You lived with us. And yet too often, Lord, we respond by just simply thinking or doing or abstractly analyzing you. And we're sorry for that. We want to experience who you are. We want this to be not just for other people, but for ourselves. And we want to work for you, Lord. We want to do your will, but we don't want to do it at the expense of actually knowing who you are as you know I have done. Be here with us. Be in the bread and the juice. Be a part of who we are, so that we can be a part of who you are. And it's in your glorious name that we pray. Amen. Mm -hmm.
this has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.